Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. back everybody. So today's guest is Professor Paul Ray. Paul is an American classicist, historian, writer, and professor right now of history at Hillsdale College. He's taught at Yale University, Cornell University, and Franklin and Marshall as well. He's also delivered some great lectures for the Hoover Institution. His CV is filled with prime books on antiquity, but today the discussion was prompted by his 2016 book, The Spartan Regime. The book focuses on the political ethos of ancient Sparta. We talked about the history of the Spartans, religion in Sparta, and Greece more broadly. We talked a little bit about the Persian Wars and what lessons we can draw from this particular period of antiquity, and it was just a wonderful conversation. And now I bring you Paul Ray. I am here with Professor Paul Ray. How are you doing today, Paul? Uh, just fine. Good. I'm very glad to have you here. You wrote a really great book. I was It was really the book that I, I needed about Sparta in a number of ways because I've been fascinated with the Spartans for many years. There was an influential movie that came out when I was around 16. I don't know if you remember the one. It was called 300. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it, strangely yeah. enough. I I know of it. It, uh, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't watch very many movies. Okay, I see. Well, what it captured so well that I found out to be true subsequently was the laconic speech end of things, and uh, that was some that was a lesson that I really wanted back then and didn't even know how much I actually needed. I happened to catch you delivering a lecture about the book, and you told this story about a Japanese and a British delegation in relatively modern times, sort of encountering each other and investigating each other. Can you tell that story? Sure. Um, in in you know in the eighteen fifties, uh, Commodore Perry opened up Japan, uh, and he did it by force. So if you're looking at this from the perspective of the Japanese, there are these barbarians from North America who have forced you to open open up economically. And you haven't been open economically since the 18th century. Uh, and the Japanese were very nervous about this, uh, as, as anyone would be if they found themselves with a gunboat in their in their main harbor and they had no way to defend themselves. So they sent delegations to Europe and invited delegations from Europe, and they sent the crown prince to visit each of the European capitals. And of course, he took civil servants and so forth along with him. And the story is told that a British civil servant uh, was speaking with a Japanese civil servant who was accompanying the crown prince. And he asked him, he says, what were your instructions? And the Japanese civil servant didn't quite know what he meant. So he said, I, I don't understand. And he said, well, we sent a delegation to Tokyo and our instructions were to find out about um, uh, what they produced in Japan that we might want to buy, what they didn't produce that we could sell to them, uh, navigable rivers, um, um, military power and sources of military power and things like that. And the Japanese responded, ah, we were asked only to find out one thing. What do they bow down to? Now, the significance of that distinction is the Japanese were judging the British and the other Europeans that they were going to meet in terms of what you might call ancient political science. Uh, and ancient political science focused on the character of the regime and the character of the people that it produced. 
And that was very much related to what they looked up to, what they aspired to. And that was fundamental. Uh, modern political science derivative from Thomas Hobbes and, and Machiavelli has a tendency to focus on power. Uh, and that gets uh, to some degree um, amended by David Hume and Montesquieu and Adam Smith uh, with an eye to the economic sources of power. So the British were thinking in terms of security, power, uh, and the Japanese were thinking in terms of what are their aspirations. Uh, now, a lot of the work that I've done uh, in books like Republic's Ancient Modern, which is a three-volume study of ancient modern republicanism, uh, and in later books, um, Against Throne and Altar, Machiavelli, and Political Theory Under the English Republic, uh, Soft Despotism, Democracy's Drift, Montesquieu and the Logic of Liberty, grows out of thinking about that distinction between ancient and modern political science. And the work that I have been doing over the last few years on the grand strategy of classical Sparta, and there have been four volumes, and there will be at least two more, uh, because I can tell you that they have been more or less completed. I, I, I should be sending one off to the publisher within a week. Um, they're grounded also in that distinction in the sense that um, the way the British civil servant was thinking points in the direction of modern realism, uh, which presumes that all political communities are the same. They're all interested in maximizing power, uh, and uh, one doesn't really have to pay much attention to culture. Uh, it is my belief uh, that the ancient understanding is superior and that um, though every uh, polity is interested in its own security, it also uh, is, is very much influenced by uh, what I call regime imperatives, that is to say moral imperatives uh, that grow out of the character of the regime. Uh, so in looking at Athens and looking at Sparta and in looking at Persia, one of the things I'm looking at is religion. Uh, another is what kind of way of life do they live? And they're not only fighting to protect power, they're also fighting to protect that way of life. So it, um, let, me, let me ask you this. Let me just stop you there for a second. Are you sort of insinuating that if I go by the maxim of render onto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render onto God that which is God or God's, are you telling me that people in general are more likely to render uh, properly onto gods? Is, is that your well, in a sense, in a sense, yes. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, the ancient Persians weren't simply interested in power; they were interested in completing a divine mission, and the divine mission was to turn the entire earth into a garden. Uh, their word for garden was paradisos. Uh, it's the word paradise in English, and it's the word that sort of crept into Hebrew for the Garden of Eden. Um, and the, the 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 religion juxtaposes a creator god with a kind of Satan-like figure. Uh, the Satan-like figure is the source of disorder in the world uh, and of the breakdown of agriculture. And it is the task of the great king of Persia to create a world empire that will bring order, but also irrigation, uh, and and thereby turn the world into a garden. I don't think you can understand uh, Persian foreign policy unless you pay some attention to these religious imperatives. In the case of the ancient Spartans, what they're defending is a way of life that is built on the subjection of a Greek people called the Mycenaeans as helots. And it's a way of life that is devoted to um, uh, gentlemanly pursuits, hunting, uh, sports, uh, and so forth. Um, and so their entire foreign policy is organized around 
creating a secure space for them to carry out this way of life uh, and to keep the helots down. Now, why? What, what's in it for them? And the answer is they love this way of life. Um, the Athenians, uh, it, it's the only city in classical antiquity uh, that isn't agrarian in character. And in the wake of the Persian Wars, it develops into a kind of imperial city in which much of the income and much of the support and jobs and so forth for people depends upon uh, providing a kind of protection racket. That is to say, they protect the Greek islanders and the people along the Asia Minor coast from the Persians. Uh, and they receive in return a contribution, and the word comes to mean tribute because it comes to be resented. Um, and so their way of life is built around um, uh, empire at sea. Uh, and it's a good way of life from their perspective. So they're defending that. So let me ask you something here because I think it's interesting. The Persian Wars today are presented as having this massive ethical dichotomy that goes on between the Persians and the Greeks, where the Persians are trying to bring this relatively poor, small territory of Europe into their already large and wealthy empire. And the Greeks are sitting there fighting for things like the shrines of their forefathers and you know the lands that they've inherited for years and years and to keep their children and their women out of slavery. But you're actually telling me here that they're both sort of observing the same idea, which is to make the world a giant celestial garden? Yeah, in a way, that's right. In, in the case of the Persian, it's really quite explicit. In the case of the Spartans, yes, they they have created a garden for themselves uh, with a laboring class, uh, and they are seeking to protect that. So they don't really want to maximize power. Uh, uh, they want to protect what they've got, uh, so and the power is secondary. So you have this sort of acquisitive Machiavellian ethos coming from the Persians of trying to acquire more land and power meets this Spartan ethos of essentially just trying to maintain what they have and do it to the best of their ability. And I guess what you could kind of say is that when you have this confrontation between Xerxes and the Spartans, the Spartans sort of say, you know, you've got all this land, but now you got to come bother us. Yeah. Uh, and... and you know, the, the, the Persians promised them they'd like to bring them over and make allies out of them. And so they promised them expansion. But right. to expand is to lose their way of life, which is which is built upon closing in on themselves. It's a shame culture. Uh, okay. And so they refuse um, expansionism in order to defend their way of life. Yes, and I, I think there is – it's interesting that you mention that because I think as part of uh, – to go back to the founding of the empire, of to look at Cyrus, it seems like Cyrus was in some ways not opposed to uh, greater territorial expansion, but it seems like part of his message – and tell me if I'm wrong here – to the Persians was not to have an overly acquisitive and decadent lifestyle. Well – Yes, at the end of – that's very interesting, and that makes them in some sense like the Spartans. At the end of Herodotus, the very last lines of Herodotus uh, have to do with the suggestion uh, on the part of Cyrus that the Persians should remain in Parsa, in their homeland, uh, where they are a semi-nomadic people, and it's, it's a rather poor place um, because – if they move out uh, and they're subject to the luxury of Babylon, they'll lose their edge. Right. They'll lose what makes them distinct and what, and what enabled them to conquer in the first place. Which is what happens when his grandson – I mean, obviously the, the empire goes on for longer than that. But, I mean, Xerxes is kind of the first of the rich kid era, right? He didn't have to get the empire. He grew up in it, right? That's right. Uh, the, the first might have been Cambyses, the son of Cyrus, right. um, who who was rather strange. But Darius is someone who rises from the Persian army, and Xerxes is the first Achaemenid, the first uh, descendant of Darius, 
uh, who is reared at the court, uh, and he uh, he really doesn't have his father's qualities. Sure, but I mean, it is interesting to see how these arch enemies in the founding of their empires seem to have basically known the same virtues, which was that a rugged lifestyle uh, of warriorhood was ultimately going to be more practical for things around safety and around sustainable lifestyles. Um, I wonder if there is yeah. something about there is something about that that transcends even to the present day in some very very interesting ways. I like to call uh, the people who realize this the keepers of the old world virtues. Right. I mean, look, you could uh, you could apply this to the United States very easily. Um, we pulled off something really quite remarkable in the Cold War. Uh, it's the only time in history that I know of when you have uh, an enduring strategic rivalry between great powers, uh, each of which has a, a kind of elaborate alliance system. And the rivalry ends with the total victory of one of the two powers and the dismemberment of the other power, and it does so without a major war. That's a rather astonishing accomplishment. Um, since that time, in the 30 or so, 30 plus years, um, we've operated as if uh, there will be no future threats. And we have built up potential enemies. We built up Russia, we built up China. Uh, and we have trouble right now getting our minds around the fact that we're back in the soup. Um, yeah. And for 30 years, we ignored the implications of uh, China becoming a great power. Deng Xiaoping said, hide your strength, bide your time. Well, they did hide their strength. They did bide their time. And now they think, they can take us. Uh, and, and, yeah. and what that suggests is every American president from the elder Bush through Bill Clinton, the younger Bush, Obama, and even to some degree Trump uh, has been blind to the dangers. And we've lived in a kind of neoliberal economic world which – brought increased prosperity, but it turns out that that prosperity is uh, very vulnerable, very fragile. And what we're seeing now is the breakdown of that neoliberal world. Uh, and we've got shortages. We've got massive inflation. Um, and, and it's hard for people to get their minds around the fact that war may recede, but it doesn't go away. There's this wonderful moment from Will Durant where he, he talks about the decay in Persia and he talks about, you know, stuff along the lines of these strong men who once swore to eat but one meal a day now rode from feast to feast, uh, interpreting the rule to have one meal prolonged throughout the day. It seems to have some very, very right. scary similarities to what we see today, where beyond even just um, our non-acknowledgement of war, we have these diseases of affluence that seem to be symptomatic of civilizations that have gotten too isolated and too comfortable with their role out there in the sun. Yeah, I, I think that's yeah. absolutely right. Uh, and, and the consequence is that we... Our politics revolves around craziness uh, and not around uh, a sober understanding of what's required for our security. I, I, I couldn't mean, agree we're, with we're you living more. in a in a in a crazy world. Um, and even the people who are responding to the craziness of our current domestic situation um, 
aren't wholly alert to the dangers we face it uh and and how serious they are so that is a that is a very heavy conversation. I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole because it I, this it's not why I brought you out. I'd love to talk to you about this some other time though. Let's let's keep it on Sparta for a second. Um, I'm sure we we may meander back here though. Um, I want to talk about. I, I think it's maybe relevant to the entirety of the book, and it's really relevant today. But there's this um, part where you're talking about Aristotle, where he's talking about the difference in temperament between the young and the old. Um, these caricatures of temperament suggest something maybe useful in both youth and age. Um, hopefulness is kind of a hopefulness and idealism is kind of a quality required to accomplish bold and maybe unrealistic things. But when it swings over into unmoored idealism, it seems like people get hurt. Um, maybe that that rings true of today's civilization. It's sort of like the old live in more calculation, seemingly, than the young do, who are powered by maybe moralistic animation a lot of the time. Um, it, it reminded me a lot of—I wasn't familiar with this part of Aristotle, or I hadn't read it in a long time. It's kind of seemed like it was along the Apollo and Dionysian con- concepts. Um, I'm wondering, do you think that it's possible—because this kind of concludes that the things that make people good soldiers make them unfit to rule. Am I right there? That's very interesting. Yes, um, look, the you can you know if if you were in the insurance car insurance game, one of the things you would know is uh, young people are not very risk averse, uh, and your sixteen, seventeen, eighteen year old, nineteen year old driver uh, is uh, more likely to get into accidents than your fifty year old driver. Uh, uh, older people uh, have an acute sense of what can go wrong because they've seen a fair amount go wrong. Young people, um, they think they're immortal uh, just instinctively. The consequence is 18-year-olds make terrific soldiers on the battlefield. Uh, They don't make terrific generals, however. Uh, uh, And uh, what what you need in a general is is an awareness of uh, the risks, but also uh, uh, an understanding of when you really have to take those risks. So prudence is something that is more apt to belong to older people. And uh, uh, audacity and courage is, is a quality of the young. Yeah, it, that totally see, it rings true a lot. Um, there are there are times where I'm looking at history where I see that there's like a monolithically talented general, even let's just say general who doesn't have the political acumen. Hannibal Barca comes to mind when you think of someone who was a true military genius and at every single level as you know soldier and general, but seemingly couldn't handle politics whatsoever. Um, you know when it, it came time to really put his achievements um, into words. Do you know what I mean? Well, think of Patton. He never got a command where he had a relatively free hand. He was always an audacious subordinate. I'll give Ah. you an example. Um, The Battle of the Bulge takes place in World War II. The Germans push our lines back. There's a German salient. Um, Eisenhower, who is a planner and very cautious, uh, perfect for D-Day, by the way, uh, he doesn't really know how to handle it. Uh, And Patton says, and he happens to be positioned where he could do this, he says, uh, I can cut him off. And what he proposes doing is surrounding the German armies by driving across uh, the base of that salient. Um, and Patton's a miracle worker in those regards. He moves very rapidly. Okay, had they been surrounded, the war probably would have been over about a year before it was over because they'd have had to, you know, they would have had American soldiers on all sides and they would have had to um, surrender. 
And uh, Hitler had sent much of his army from the Eastern Front to the Western Front to try to break through on the Western Front. Um, what ends up happening is uh, Eisenhower says, no, I, I want them driven back, and uh, and that'll take six weeks. And Patton says, I can do it in two, and he does it in two. But had he been politically more astute, he'd have been more in charge, and the war would have ended earlier. Give him a free hand, and oh my. Let me uh, – I'm going to take you to one story that I am, have been curious about for a while. I'm sure some listening will also be curious. But the story of Aristagoras of Miletus, who uh, – it's always held up as this kind of contrast between the inefficiencies of democracies and the efficiencies of a monarchy where Aristagoras kind of goes with the clever PowerPoint presentation to the Spartan king about all the good things you'll get if you come and join uh, and come and save, you know, your fellow Greeks. Um, and the Spartan king basically saying, you know, be out of Sparta by sundown. And uh, he was apparently uh, able to impress better upon the Athenians. Um, do you think this story is more apocryphal? Should we be looking into this as a dichotomy between different sorts of rule? Ah, that's a good question. Um, Herodotus thinks and tells the story in order to illustrate this, uh, that it's easier to fool a multitude than an experienced individual. Um, that may well be the case. I mean, it, it's... Um, I, I've been working recently on the, the Athens-Sicilian expedition. And you, you look at it and you think in the circumstances, this is just crazy. Uh, but what happens is in speaking to a large assembly of people, you can get them really worked up. Uh, and, and that's what happens. Whereas if you were, say, speaking to the Gerousia at Sparta, which is these old guys, uh, they would ask the following question. What could go wrong? Uh, I have sons. One is 13, one is 15. Uh, I am always saying to the 13-year-old, before you do something in the slightest bit risky, you should ask yourself, what could go wrong? Um, that is uh, what Cleomenes of Sparta asked himself. Now, if you remember, he asked this fellow, some Aristagoras of Miletus, certain questions. One of them is, how far a journey is it to the Persian court? And the answer was a three-month march. <laughs> and Cleomenes' response is, I can't take a Spartan army three months away. We need to be here to keep the helots down. Um, the Athenians don't ask that question. They're hot-blooded um, almost. Yeah, but also think about the experience of being at a football game in which the stands are absolutely full. Both teams are very good. Uh, and there's a breakthrough, and everyone's on their feet. Think of that sense, feeling of commonality with everybody on your side in that, um, you know, that 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 place where the where the where the game is being played. Mm. Or think about being in a movie theater where every seat is taken, and it's a comedy, and it's very funny. Contrast this with sitting in that same theater and watching that same comedy, and you're the only person in the theater. It's a different experience. There, there's something um, – um, David Hume uses the word contagion to talk about the feeling that passes between people at that football game, uh, at that concert, at that movie. Uh, and that's what oratory does in a big public assembly. Um, 
you, you know, you go to a political rally. I don't do much of this, but I, I, I have, as a newspaper reporter, covered political realities, uh, political rallies. Uh, and the excitement in the air is just enormous. And the orator could do just about anything he wanted with that crowd. But speaking one-to-one, you can't do that to people. That's the difference between Cleomenes' situation and the Athenian assembly. I, I I really like that explanation of things. Uh, there's a there's a couple things here for anyone listening. This this story um, about Cleomenes and Aristagoras of Miletus is uh, it was something I got in political science in college that was raised up as kind of the difference between uh, forms of governments. But we're gonna get here to a second uh, here in a second to the fact that really Sparta has the first division of powers we can really notice ever. So it's actually it's interesting that Aristagoras went right for the king. Maybe he thought it would have been easier to impress right on Cleomenes instead of getting in front of everyone there. Um, it's also a wonderful full story of the uncorruptibility of the Spartans because I think after. Cleomenes says, you know, get out of Sparta by sundown. The, uh, you know, Aristagoras comes back and says, I'll give you five talents if you do it. I'll give you ten talents if you do it. And I guess there's the the son of Cleomenes, probably apocryphal, but still a wonderfully colorful story, says something to the effect of, Daddy, you better get this guy out of here. He's going to corrupt you. Actually, it's the daughter. Yeah, it's the daughter, and she was a child. And Herodotus may well have met her. Oh wow! Spartan oh, women are out in public in the way Athenian women aren't. This this may well be a true story uh, that is told by the daughter about her father. Wow, that is I mean that's amazing and it's it's wonderfully modern and it sums up partially the 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 amazingness of having something like Herodotus, but also gives us a wonderful message about the Spartans that uh, I think is really worth taking to the bank here, um, for lack of a better term. Um, while I'm on the bank here, I have I've one or two more questions. Um, one of them is around this concept of money, where I think one of the popular things that people thought of in the Greek world at the time was sort of Plato's world, Plato's idea that maybe, you know, when, when thinking about the Spartans, they're this repressed, almost cast of people who outwardly have these certain characteristics, but there's this part where you mentioned, I was familiar with the quote, that Plato sort of says that under the cover of dark, they worship gold and silver like savages. Can you talk a little bit maybe about how, what we can learn about the repression of people to a certain extent and how it actually makes them more craven in certain ways? Right. What What you're looking at there is the fact that Sparta is a shame culture. Uh, it's um, and let me distinguish that from what you see with Christianity. Uh, with Christianity, there is a notion of the examination of conscience. Uh, among Catholics and Orthodox, uh, this is um, uh, tied up with confession to a priest. But with Protestants, it takes place uh, as part of the liturgy. Catholics do this too. Uh, One is supposed to think about one's sins. Okay, Christianity creates a guilt culture. Now, in a guilt culture, you, you regret things that you did, and you can even regret them in private. You can sit down and think, what I did was cruel. What I did was wrong. In a shame culture, it's only in front of other people that you uh, evidence that. Now, Sparta is a shame culture. The principal magistrates, elected magistrates in Sparta, are the ephors. The word means overseers. And there's a sense in which Spartans are never alone except in their household. They're always under the oversight of their fellow citizens. So the Spartan has one outside and another inside. Uh, 
The Christian is supposed to be outside the way he is inside, or rather, he's supposed to be inside the way he is outside, which is to say he's supposed to internalize the shame. There isn't any notion of that among the Spartans. And by the way, I think within Confucian society, there isn't a notion of it either. Could this be, could this be making an, uh, sort of a moralistic artifact in the agogi where the children are asked to steal but not get caught? Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's what that's all about. Right. You know, the story with the Spartans is twofold. One, luxury in the home. Plato talks about this in the Republic. Uh, And a plainness on the outside of the home. But also, if a Spartan goes abroad... Uh, the Spartan is likely to be corrupted. They're notoriously open to bribery. Uh, They're given to uh, rape. They're given to the mistreatment of other peoples. They're very decent to one another at home. They're indecent abroad. And the reason they're indecent abroad is no one is watching. No one they care about is watching. It's interesting. You don't hear a whole lot about Spartan literature. Um, Do you think this could be part of the equation here that you don't have a ton in the way of idealistic Spartan thinkers, that you can't get an insular kind of ethic that forces people into a position that's so self-examined that they can't develop a strong enough morality at all times? Well, uh, let me suggest that... Uh, literature and reflection generally arises from failure. Most, uh, most is too strong. Many of the great books have been written by people in prison or in exile. Ah. And we tend not to be reflective unless we fall on our faces. When we mess up, we ask, how did we do that? How did we get into this pickle? What mistake did we make? That leads to the kind of reflection that you find in political philosophy. But look, if everything is going perfectly and nothing's wrong, there's no need to think very much. You do what you were trained to do or you were brought up to do. Uh, so uh, there, there is a sense in which um, uh, failure leads to certain kinds of successes. I don't mean it guarantees it. It surely does not. But it, well, would, explain, see, Spartans, it would explain – It would explain why when you have these cataclysmic political events, you get all kinds of new trains of um, basically monolithic political thought that come from them. Oh, yeah. I'll give you a a very good example about that. I wrote about the English Revolution. The the greatest outpouring of uh, political literature – at any time in human history, took place between about 1636 and uh, 1660 in England. And what occasioned that uh, was the crisis of the monarchy. And a lot of this this speculation was religious in character, uh, but not all of it. Uh, And uh, uh, it, it, it leads to a kind of rethinking of politics from the ground up. Uh, and it, 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 it's even greater than in, in amount than the total literature, uh, political literature produced during the time of the uh, French and American revolutions in all countries. It's just immense. And, uh, you know, working on this, I read an awful lot of the pamphlets, and they're just an enormous number. 
and they are fascinating. I mean, just fascinating. Uh, uh, so the Spartans are tremendous success. They don't need to do much thinking. And they have stability. Now, early on, their literature is Tertius. And it's it's a literature of crisis when they're trying to reconquer the Mycenaeans. So they do have a literature at a time of failure. But they don't have a literature uh, when they've had one success after another. That's very fascinating. And I, I mean, I think one of the words that comes to mind there uh, is stability, maybe. Just the interior stability of the civilization that you mentioned this actually very interestingly that I, I didn't really even think so much, but think about so much. But whereas you might have a division of powers in a modern civilization, what you sort of have is, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, an insulated division of principles in Sparta. Because you sort of point out and mention how Sparta is shockingly modern in its division of powers, but you point out how the insulation of principles sort of allows it to not become a partisan environment. It develops gradually. Uh, and part of what gives rise to it is the accident of two kings. Uh, and that presumably, I mean, we, we, we don't quite know how that came about. Uh, but uh, early on, they end up with two kings, probably identical twins, something along those lines. Um, and the effect of that is that there is not a single ruler. Uh, and then you get a series of crises, and each crisis produces a new institution. So the Gerousia, uh, it involves a kind of revolt against the kings, but it is actually led by a member of uh, the um, uh, royal uh, family, uh, Lycurgus. And then you have another crisis that comes with the Mycenaean War. Uh, and uh, once again, you get a political reform, and it's against the power of the Garrosia or the aristocracy, and it's led by one of the two kings. So right. the, the Spartan constitution is very much like the British constitution. It is a product of political conflict over a long period of time. And adjustments are made in the course of that political conflict, and you end up with a kind of compromise regime uh, that serves the community very well. You know, it's not like the American Constitution, which is created in a certain sense rationally uh, by people who've given a lot of thought to, um, uh, you know, what might be done. Uh, it's uh, created over time by adjustments. I see. Now, of course, and you know, we have the advantage of the British political tradition. So uh, what we end up doing uh, with our constitution is very strongly influenced by their experience with theirs. Which is that we can that we're flexible in the sense that we can review things in real time, essentially. Yeah, but the other side of it is um, we have bicameralism, which is an imitation right. of theirs. We have an executive that's uh, an adjustment of monarchy. Uh, we have uh, courts that are independent of politics, or at least meant to be independent of politics, uh, that, that they have that too as a consequence of their political struggles. So once, once a judge is appointed, you can't remove him off from office uh, except for corruption. Um, okay. So we, 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 are, we are out – we're a branch of England, and we – the Americans grew up knowing English history. And with a mm -hmm. deep appreciation for the British Constitution, 
So their own constitution is a kind of variation on the British practice to bring it into accord with republicanism. Sure. Okay. That makes tons of sense. Um, let me ask you – I'm going to ask you two final questions. They're big here, and they're both prompted by John Stuart Mill. The first one – All right. Is John Stuart Mill? You didn't mention this, but this is something I've come across. I think John Stuart Mill said that the Battle of Marathon was more important in British history than the Battle of Hastings was. I want you to react to that. I think it gives some context to just how important these events are that we're talking about. Yeah, I quote that in Republic Saint Modern, uh, which is a book about. Uh, the impact of ancient republicanism on modern republicanism uh, and the adjustments that were made uh, to improve on ancient republicanism. Uh, it, look, the answer is that there was a model uh, for modern Europe, uh, and that model is supplied by Greece and Rome. And you begin to see it having an impact on people in Europe in the wake of the Renaissance. And there is a fad for ancient Greece and Rome. And people in England in Parliament in the 17th century are thinking of themselves as successors to Cicero and Pericles and Themistocles and so forth. That's true of the French Revolution as well. And if you look at the American Revolution, the names that people take, the pseudonyms that they assume when they're writing uh, in the press, um, these the sort of long um, series of articles like The Federalist, uh, uh, they take classical names, Cato. The Federalist, the name they take is Publius. Uh, and that's a sign that they're operating in the shadow of ancient republicanism. And John Stuart Mill's point is there wouldn't have been any kind of cultural heritage of ancient republicanism if the Persians had won. And seemingly, I think maybe to drive that point home, is that in the period we're talking about, Athens hasn't reached its civilizational high point yet. It's, it doesn't produce no. yet the things that we know and come to associate with that golden age of Greek intellectualism. Right. 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 So. And, and look, the model in the 18th century, the two models are Sparta and Rome. Yeah. Uh, but the people who write about Sparta are Athenians. So, so you've got to right. have Athens in order to have any knowledge of Sparta. The the uh, and um, so there's there's a kind of obsession with ancient Greece and Rome on the part of the people who created modern republicanism. Now, part of what they're up to is improving on ancient republicanism. Because after all, it failed. Rome turned into an empire. Uh, Athens lost to Sparta. Sparta lost to Thebes. Macedon conquered everything. So how can you avoid the mistakes that the ancients made? They're our model, but we want to improve on that model. Yeah. And the Americans are very clear. I mean, John Adams writes a letter um, in the 17, late 1760s, and he said, we live in an age that Cicero would love to have lived in. I mean, he wants to be another Cicero, but a more successful Cicero. You know, want to get here to the final question, and it's another John Stuart Mill bit. You wrote about it. I'm going to let you kind of just take the conversation out here, but it's this one. The Quote, the habitual abnegation of ordinary personal interests and merging of self with an idea were not compatible with pettiness of mind. It's, end quote, it's on this merging of the human mind with an idea. Um, so just broadly here, what can we learn from the ability of the Spartan system to merge mind with man? Um, it, it, look, it, it's, um, it's very easy to be selfish. It's very easy to... Um, uh, disappear into a kind of individualism where the only thing that matters to you uh, 
is yourself or maybe a little more than that, your own family. Um, the, the Spartans managed to instill in the people of Lacedaemon uh, a communal spirit, a dedication to one another. Uh, and uh, they did this through something like the equivalent of a baseball camp. You know the kind of camp that the, the, the spring spring practice down in Florida uh, in preparation for the year. You take a group of men and you turn them into a team, uh, and you you make them friends of one another, uh, and uh, and dedicated to one another. Uh, Christianity has at various times had pretty much the same effect. I mean, think what it's like to be a member of a monastic order. Um, and uh, there, there's a kind of dedication to a common good, something you do in common. Uh, most of us experience this in a, in a more mundane way with a family. Uh, husband and wife marry. What makes them more than two people who share a common refrigerator? Uh, the general thing that does that, in most cases, is children. Children are a common good. Um, when we are talking about children, my wife and I, we're deliberating about their good. We're not negotiating with one another about my wife's good and my good and who's going to cut the lawn and who's going to do this. We're asking the question, okay, this child is this age. What's the best thing for this child? And of course, as you as you no doubt know, what's good for one child is not necessarily good for another child. Um, similarly, two missionaries uh, in Mexico, say they're Baptists, um, uh, they don't work separately. The husband and wife work in tandem, and the common good is the saving of souls. Uh, that's what the Spartans achieve. Um, that's what the United States Marines tries to achieve, um, and arguably the U.S. Army and 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 so forth. Uh, and that's in a way what every religious community tries to achieve. The common good there being the saving of souls. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, Paul. I am very grateful for your time, and I hope you have a great day.